the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Carrie here, and thank you so much for joining us today. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today, we are going to sit down and have a wide-ranging conversation with Andy Crouch. And I'm really interested in the breakdown of trust that we've seen across society, but also within the church. Um, what personalized technology is doing to us, including its impact on the soul. And we'll talk about the disruption that we're facing, perhaps, for the indefinite future as leaders. It was Andy who came up with the whole metaphor two years ago of, hey, is this a blizzard, a winter, or an ice age? Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, So more about Andy in a minute. Thanks to our partners for this episode. Do you know that Brush Fire is helping 30,000 events a year? And you can get $500 toward your first event by simply going to brushfire.com slash carry and put on a seamless experience. And by Leader, you can engage and grow your team with Leader's people development software by going to leader.com and using the promo code carry for 20% off your first year. Well, I'm very excited to have Andy Crouch on the podcast today. He's the author of four books. He's also the partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. For more than 10 years, Andy was a producer and then executive editor at Christianity Today. His work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time, Best Christian Writing, and Best Spiritual Writing. And it's a thrill to have him on the podcast for the very first time. I want to thank all of you who are new listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. And have you checked out my brand new podcast, The Art of Leadership Daily, yet? It's been out for a couple of weeks now. And you can head on over, just look for The Art of Leadership Daily or search my name wherever you listen to your podcast. It takes a short excerpt from the now vast archive of episodes we have here and brings you, well, 10 minutes or less from leaders like Simon Sinek, Gordon McDonald, of course, Andy Crouch, and about, well, I don't know, 450 other guests I've had. And that's uh, Monday to Friday. So check it out. The Art of Leadership Daily. Want you to check that one out as well. Well, uh, thank goodness events are back. So let Brushfire help launch yours. Brushfire offers an all-in-one event management platform that gives you the features you need for a really good price. So whether you need seamless ticketing for your event and registration, custom event pages, virtual event solutions, or even an attendee app for your event or anything in between, Brushfire will help you put on your picture-perfect event. Best of all, platform is super easy to use. You don't have to be a tech wizard. And they have built hundreds of partnerships with churches and ministries around the world since 2003. Their team is waiting to help make your event a success. So join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every year by going to brushfire.com slash carry. That's brushfire.com slash carry. Also, you know the Great Resignation is far from over, but It's happening now for different reasons. The job market is still hot despite the wobbly economy. Unemployment is low, but resignations are up 23% compared to pre-COVID times. That means people are resigning to go to better jobs, or at least in their mind, what's a better job? So now's the time for you as a leader to ask yourself, am I creating a culture of people development or is my team going to walk too? Well, my friends at Leader are on a mission to transform the great resignation to the great resolution. So Leader's software can help you engage and grow your team by helping every single manager become a coach and giving every employee a voice. Leader is a people development software that helps you develop leaders at scale with consistent one-on-one meetings, 
clear goals, so important, and regular feedback. So check them out. Go to leader, that's L-E-A-D-R, no second E, L-E-A-D-R.com. Use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, for 20% off your first year. Well, now, without much further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Andy Crouch. Andy, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Gary. Uh, so I want to go back two years because I remember around the time the pandemic started, you, along with a couple of others, posted a pivotal article that got cited widely. And you used the metaphor, is this pandemic thing, which nobody knew what we were signing up for, <laughs> is it, I think the metaphors were, is it a blizzard, a winter, or an ice age? A particularly uh, Canadian-friendly metaphor, I would like to say. Very Canadian-friendly, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we long for summer, I'll tell you. And everyone was kind of like, hey, man, this is a blizzard. Like, we're going to be back open again in a, in a heartbeat. I would love to start there. So two and a half years later, you know, what's your take on it now? What is this? It clearly wasn't a blizzard, probably wasn't winter. What kind of ice age are we in? <laughs> it's been a very long winter if it's only been a winter. Well, the, yeah. the idea of the ice age was, you know, not just a season, but a, a shift in the climate mm. um, that would be generational. I mean, you know, true ice ages are maybe hundreds of years long. I don't think we were suggesting anything like that, but um, a kind of permanent change in the climate longer than you can just uh, wait out, right? Mm. So when even winter, you sort of can stay indoors for a few months and then come back and, and life is normal again. Truly, Whereas yeah. the earth over and over has had these shifts in climate, some of which are cooling shifts, ice ages, where for generations, every organism, every ecosystem has to adapt. And in mm. that sense, um, while it seems that we're past the worst of COVID-19 as a pandemic, I think the results of it, I would, I would stand by, unfortunately, what we wrote, that this is an epochal... Uh, age-defining, uh, it, it inaugurated a change in the age. Uh, it's not going to be the last act. It may not even be the most memorable or important thing about this time, but we wondered and sensed and felt like leaders needed to attend to the possibility that it was going to set in motion changes that we'd be wrestling with for the rest of our lives. And I pretty much think that is going to prove to be the case. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking it through and really hoping this wasn't going to be a nice age, but I couldn't agree more. Too. Like, yeah, like nobody's signing up for this. But I think that's a really interesting time frame. Like these are changes that are profound enough that we'll be wrestling with them for the rest of our lives. Um, yeah. So, you know, our mutual friend David Kinnaman and I on our other podcast, The Church Pulse Weekly, have talked about a series of cascading crises for leaders. And yes. when you look back at the last two and a bit years, and it seems to never end. I mean, just whether it's school shootings, as tragic as they mm -hmm. are, um, I'd love for you to name some of the crises that you think that we're in and then maybe talk about their severity. Like what, what are the shifts? What is, what are the characteristics of this ice age that we are moving into that we will be wrestling with indefinitely, if not for the rest of our lives? Mm. Yeah. Three come to mind and they're, they're going to operate on perhaps very different timescales. I think they're all going to be significant. Um, the one that for them at this moment, as we're speaking is actually the least of our concerns that when we wrote the piece was probably the greatest of our concerns is the economic knock-on effects from the pandemic. I, you know, it, it was very plausible in March of 2020 that, that we were going to see a 
you know, Great Depression level worldwide economic event. And because <laughs> certain central banks printed trillions of dollars, um, that didn't happen. And yeah. so I guess that's good. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, the honest truth is that uh, this has never been attempted. The the amount of money creation uh, that's been attempted in response to the 2008 financial crisis compounded by COVID-19, it's just never been tried before. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, But maybe it'll work out okay. I mean, these systems are both very fragile and very adaptable at the same time. So the economic crisis as much as as we as we speak now, uh, the world is really being hit by inflation and by shortages of various kinds that could become quite severe, um, do more to the war in uh, Ukraine than to the pandemic per se. Um, you know, for the moment, I actually think the economic situation is far less grim than we probably expected it would be. Um, so that's good. Um, the second is going to be the longest to play out. And it is the developmental formational crisis for children and youth. Mm-hmm. So we we had a little inkling of this that we wrote about in our piece, Leading Beyond the Blizzard, when we talked about the fact that eight, eight to 10 years old seems to be, according to the scholarship of this um, scientist, many others, but including the scientist Marianne Wolf at Tufts, has, has demonstrated that there's this window of opportunity uh, during which you you can acquire reading fluency. That is, reading mm-hmm. becomes just fully neurologically, cognitively natural for a human being. And if it's taught in that window, children learn to read very effectively. If, if they miss that window um, and they learn to read later, they acquire functional reading, but not fluent reading. So they can sort of get by, but you never get the brain wired up to sort of fully immerse yourself in a text. Mm. And so we were very concerned about the educational impacts. And these have turned out in differing ways in different parts of the world and even different parts of our countries to be quite severe. The really um, terrible thing is that in, let's just uh, let's just charitably say, well-intentioned efforts to protect people from infection, uh, many mm. schools in some of our largest cities in the U.S. at least were shut down fully for an entire year, if not more. Uh, the learning that was attempted to be provided uh, over Zoom and so forth was was really not at all workable, especially for more challenged communities or less resourced communities. And the deficits that we're now seeing in uh, educational attainment in this cohort of elementary school students is it's absolutely horrifying, and it's frankly off of a relatively low baseline. So, mm. so you think about that that cohort of elementary school age children who missed out for a couple of years on years that you just don't get back neurologically. <laughs> but I will tell you the thing I totally didn't think about that I'm actually more concerned about is what I'm hearing from teachers and administrators and others who work with high school students. And I actually think that just as eight to 10 is like the window for, for acquiring reading fluency, like 13 to 15 is the window for acquiring social fluency. Hmm. The ability to be in a relationship to sort of exchange all the things you exchange with another person, you know, knowing how to talk with someone, knowing how to uh, get upset with someone and not have it just rupture everything, knowing how to take a joke, uh, just all these things that we practice in middle school. It's very painful. It's very awkward. um, But they missed it. And what I'm hearing from my friends who teach in these environments or work in these environments is absolutely apocalyptic. Like I've had all these teachers say, oh yes, things that we could just take for granted in our ninth graders, um, 
two years ago or in 2019, we now, we can't even, I had one teacher say, we can't do group exercises. He said, I used to teach all with group discussion. He said, my eighth graders just do not know how to have a group discussion. They're like fifth graders. They can't stay on topic. They can't interact with each other. And so, you know, the thing is, uh, maybe some of this can be made up. Uh, it's going to be really hard to make up those basic learning deficits. Can the social deficits be made up? I'm not sure. Uh, but I think we are going to see a, a hundred years of effects from the kind of missed opportunities of, very broadly speaking, socialization for a generation of kids who are just going to grow up having to make do as best as they can. And um, and they will make their way through the world somehow, but it may be there will be a lot of things that will happen that will get blamed on other things that actually their root cause will be what they missed out on as children through no fault of their own. Well, and that's compounding on already what a lot of people would say is social breakdown and the inability of even adults to have a conversation. Exactly. And this actually was going to be my third thing, which ah. is the crisis of trust in institutions generally. Mm -hmm. So, and this is more the adult version of that, that really, uh, and this was, you know, pandemics historically rarely create whole new situations. They just accelerate things that were already mm -hmm. happening. And in the long run, they don't matter nearly as much as the other changes that were happening around them, but that they accelerate. And we were already um, in different ways, um, and it, it differs from country to country, but in a kind of breakdown of trust in fundamental institutions. But it's it was tremendously accelerated, um, partly by the direct events of the pandemic. We wrote in March of 2020, we didn't anticipate that in May of 2020, a police officer would uh, murder a man in mm. broad daylight in a especially gruesome way that would be witnessed on video by hundreds of millions of people. Um, you know, probably many people have never actually watched an actual murder. Uh, and we watched a, a murder. Uh, I actually did not watch the video. I chose not to watch it, but many, many people did. And the trauma of that, the rage of that, the collapse of trust uh, that that caused and the knock-on effects, um, especially severe in the U.S., but setting off echoes everywhere in the world, um, th this is maybe the deepest uh, crisis because the question of is there any neutral ground that we can meet on and trust that it will be fair for us to all be in this space, whether that's a street in Minneapolis or a court, a court of law, um, or a church. <laughs> mm. um, there's a real uh, crisis of trust in all of these institutions now. So welcome to the Ice Age. All, yeah. all this is going to be the reality for the rest of our lives. We're going to be unraveling each of these things, the economic, the educational, and the institutional. I'd like to break that down a little bit because uh, actually it's funny. Earlier today, I was working on a, a series that I'm working on for our church on the breakdown of trust. Mm. And it's a rare time that I sit down and I'm like, yeah, I don't even know. I picked the subject. It's my fault. But like... <laughs> Like even diagnosing how bad the issue is, is incredible. And so yeah. I'm trying to surf off of, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and mm. strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you mm. love God and how do you love your neighbor if you can't trust God and can't trust your neighbor and the only person you wow. trust is yourself? Wow. Like that's a really profound issue. And mm. I'm struggling mm. even to have words. Maybe I'll abandon it and do like a simple series. That would be easier. Um, but <laughs> do something you know, on it's, sex or something simple Something on like that. sex. That, that's got to be, <laughs> that's got to be less challenging, Andy. 
But, you know, I'm sitting there looking at my notes going, this is a really profound subject. And I'd love your take on that because I think you're right. You know, in the same way that to protect ourselves, we isolated ourselves. Somebody pointed out to me, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, in the pandemic, the the other people became the enemy, right? Like, are you going to infect me? Is someone else going to infect me? And whether that lasted a month or two years, depending on where you lived or what your perspective is, it really kind of weaponized humanity. But then we also lost trust in each other. We lost trust in our politicians, which was already low. Mm-hmm. What happens when trust breaks down? Like what happens when you become, and then we all trust ourselves, right? So now I'm an expert on global supply chain. I'm an expert on pandemics. I'm an expert on racial <laughs> I've justice. I've done my research. I've done all my research. Yeah, I've been on YouTube for at least 28 minutes and I'll tell you all about it. Like what happens when you become the locus of trust? Yeah, what a, uh, that's a very uh, insightful way to put it, I think. I haven't thought about that, that you know, the only ones we are left to trust in is ourselves uh, and perhaps people who seem sufficiently like ourselves, uh, who mm. we assemble you know, sort of on the go uh, to reinforce our sense of ourselves. Our um, little gang tribe that we've assembled <laughs> online. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well... Let me uh, let me approach it this way and, and just say I think there is a, a tiny sliver of good news here, which is mm. all trust is actually built on rupture and repair. This is something I've been mm. thinking about quite a bit in the last few oh, months. Wow. And I, I draw these words from my friend Kurt Thompson, who you might know. He's a psychiatrist and yeah, really, really insight, yeah. insightful writer and teacher and, and um, counselor in the the way of healthy life, you might say. And Kurt, um, in his books and in his ministry and teaching, talks about these two words, rupture and repair, that the fact is that the only way I ever come to trust anyone is to have some degree of interruption in the relationship. So hmm. this first happens in human development between the mother, the, usually the mother and the child, or the caregiver and the child. I'm talking about like the first moments of infancy in a way. Because the child needs the mother there. Let's just say the mother is often the one who provides that initial care. And, but then the mother has to leave the room and you're handed to an aunt or a, or the dad or whoever, you know, for a moment. And where did she go? Is she coming back? Right? So this is the like first layer of rupture and repair is simply absence and then renewed presence. And just that simple rhythm that is when you start to look for it, you realize it characterizes all of our lives. What, you know, later today I'll go down and we'll have dinner again, my wife, and then actually my son who's been living, he's adult, living away from home. He's back for a short visit. So he's come back, right? And we come back to dinner and sort of every night we've gone our separate ways during the day, we come back. And, and that's like the, the building block of trust is hmm. uh, you, you were gone, but now you're back. <laughs> so that's hmm. very basic. But then you have these deeper ruptures, which require more intentional repair. And I, I've thought of the next layer that you could call failure and recovery. And that's when something breaks down, not necessarily through anyone's fault. And then you have to work to sort of repair it. Um, it's not, there may not even be any blame. You know, the world is unpredictable. You know, for example, uh, you know, uh, I thought you were picking uh, our kid up at school today and you got a flat tire and it didn't happen, right? It's not really anyone's fault. 
But there's still a question of how do we recover from that breakdown and what we expected it would be like. And trust is built in that way too, when, when mm. we're resilient and we work through it. And then the deepest one is sin and forgiveness, right? Where there's actually not just failure, but fault. And so the reason this is good news is we were coasting <laughs> on certain assumptions about who we could trust and why that have been have now been tested and in some ways in some cases and ways really deeply broken but this is actually just the invitation to the next stage of trust which is mm. rebuilding through forgiveness where there's been sin and also repentance of course and conversion in a way and mercy and all that through just resilience like gosh that was that failure was hard what we lost a lot we may never get it back but we're still going to find a way to move forward together and then also through just returning to being present. I, I do want to say, Carrie, even just this absence presence thing, um, I, mm. it's different in, for each of our listeners probably because uh, like in Texas in the US, I don't think COVID ever happened. People just kept yeah. doing their thing. Uh, it's about 14 minutes. I was, that was it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like, it was a blizzard. <laughs> they, it was. Um, it was. You know, in, in Canada, it was a lot, lot longer. In Philadelphia, oh, yeah. it was a lot longer. That's a nice but, age. So, you know, we're talking in the spring of 2022 here, and and I've just, for about two months, been able to be back in actual, like, presence of people. Mm. And I will tell you, there are several relationships, individual relationships, with, in, with people who I hadn't seen in, in a couple of years, because we just couldn't. We live far enough apart and so all that. And in subtle ways, I was starting to mistrust them. I just, I started to have little narratives in my mind of what was going on in their lives and little hints I would pick up. And um, and we got back together, and this happened very vividly for me just a couple of weeks ago with someone, I, I just really thought things were going in the wrong direction for this person and in our relationship. And we get back together in person and go for a walk and catch up, and I realize most of that I was just imagining. Some of what I was imagining, uh, what, some of what I wasn't imagining, there, there's a deeper story that I can now pay attention to in a deep way in person. And I left, I have no idea how that other person felt about me, uh, you know, but, but I left with this renewed sense, oh, I totally want to be in relationship with this person. Mm. But I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I live too much in my head or have a too active imagination or whatever, but does, I mean, does this ring true? Like you, yes. you just, you start to build these narratives and just when you come back together. So I want to encourage people as you start rebuilding that in-person presence, it, it trust begins to return um, in a really important way. Now, the sad thing is many of our churches, there are some people who just will never come back. And so you'll never get that presence again. But for those who do come back, I think there's so much room to rebuild from here, even though we're in a great crisis. Now, how all, all this scales up to the massive institutions that we have in our modern world, I do not exactly know. But um, maybe we just begin where we are and start rebuilding. You know, it's interesting because, yeah, we have largely tracked with people we know online for months or a couple of years in some cases and I had a very similar thing happen where, you know, one person drank the crazy pill, I thought. And mm. I thought, wow, you know, he's really gone off the deep end. And then, you know, we haven't really had that walk yet. Yeah. But in the few times that I've connected with that person, 
it's like, oh yeah, you're a real human and you're actually yes, a decent exactly. human. And exactly. um, you're not like, maybe your feet is a little bit crazy train, but you're, you're like a really good person. And it really does change that. So I think that, that is, mm-hmm. that is hopeful and helpful. And I think you're right. Forgiveness, uh, you know, repentance and even understanding and empathy for someone else's yeah. viewpoint can be really good. And I've, you know, come to think of it, I think you have a friend we hung out with recently and um, she had a reconciliation with her sister and they were on opposite ends of the whole COVID thing. And it was like, oh, that's right. We, we do actually get along and it might be different, but what do you do now? Because, you know, this is a leadership podcast. A lot of people are leading those institutions. And I think Mm -hmm. the average pastor, the average business leader may have gone down a couple of notches in trust in that just because you hold a position, you know, we've, we've talked about yep. this for decades. John Maxwell wrote about holding a title doesn't make you a leader, et cetera, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago. So we know this, but it really seems to have accelerated. So what are the implications for institutions that are mistrusted, whether that's congregations, denominations, uh, associations, mm-hmm. universities, seminaries, governments, um, they're all sort of mistrusted now and got a lot of eye mm. Wow. Well, a couple thoughts. I mean, uh, one is don't, don't neglect the, the 12 that you can actually have the, the most, uh, connected relationship with. So mm. none of us can sustain a large number of real personal connections. And so I think of all leadership, all culture making happens in these circles of three, 12 and 120. And the three is like the, the core inner circle where there can be in, in, I think often you could truly say total trust. Like Mm. we know each other so well that uh, we don't always agree, but, but there's never a, a fundamental breakdown because we just, we know what each other's feeling, thinking is probably how they're going to respond in a given moment. Um, the 12 is the next circle out. And 12 is a number that's important because in a, in a room of, of real human beings, like a physical room, not a Zoom room, um, 12 is about the maximum number where you can actually simultaneously attend to what each person is subtly thinking and feeling. You, you know when someone's out of sorts. You know when someone is restless. You know when someone doesn't really isn't really on board. You get much bigger than 12 and you lose the ability. I think it's literally wired into our brains. You just lose the ability to keep track. You can hardly keep track of if everybody's even there. You know, that's when you start using the buddy system to make sure all the kindergartners are still here. Um, but with 12, and I think it's kind of the maximum you can do that. And every leader, I think, right now needs to be thinking, how am I pouring into trust, not just with my three? And I think the the temptation is to shrink our circles, yeah. like just to I have sh- one person left I can trust, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly, 100%. right. Uh, but that's very dangerous. So you need to be like pushing out to get get that twelve together at whatever cost you can afford to pay, and maybe a little more, like sacrificially investing in time because that 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 needs to be solid. And there may be rupture and repair to be worked through there. And again, that's not bad news. That's just the way relationships are built and the way trust is built. The challenge with institutional leadership is that you have so many more than 12 who are looking to you, who are paying attention, who are trying to interpret what you're doing. And 
you know, two things come to mind here. Uh, one, which is very general is, well, they're both kind of general, but, um, one, which is all perennially true is that you have to lead through symbolic action. So the way that leaders get things done at institutional scale is they make very, um, considered choices about what they're going to do in public when and why, <laughs> because you've got to choose moments that somehow signal and compress and condense into a, into a brief moment, um, all the values you're trying to advance. And I don't know how to prescribe that. I think that for those of us who are Christian, like you pray for the Holy spirit to give, give me the right moment to say the right thing or do the right thing or not do something or, you know, whatever. Um, you got to look for those symbolic actions. And I think in this moment, you have to ask, you know, what, what are the biggest fault lines and what, what are the symbolic actions available to me that would reframe for this community I'm entrusted with leading, uh, a different way of seeing, uh, where, where we're stuck. Maybe the other thing I would say is, uh, and this may be always true, but I feel like it's a particular temptation right now. I, I think, everything's so polarized that it, it's it's so tempting to just be vague <laughs> like mm. just sort of not talk about the things i actually think this moment requires clarity from leaders and it's going to come at a cost because the moment you clarify here's what we're doing about masks here's what we're you know pick whatever the hot topic is um you are going to lose people and that that betrayal and loss is just the pain it's the just the deep pain of leadership but the alternative is staying vague in a way that allows everybody to misinterpret you and spin your absence of clarity for their own purposes. And then you lose everybody. So you're not going to, we're not going to be able to keep in the short run. I don't think we're going to be able to keep these kind of big, big tents together. I think we, we're going to need leaders who say, this is where we're going. This is why. This is the sacrificial logic behind it. This is the repentance behind it. This is the, heart behind it. And you may not go with us, but this is where we're going. And I, I feel like there's a temptation right now for leaders to back away from that, try to keep everybody on board. And I just think the, the back channels of interpretation are going to overwhelm you if you try to do that, if you're not clear. Yeah. Does that and make by sense? definition, that's not leadership, <laughs> right? <laughs> leadership is, here's what we're about. Here's where we're going. Yeah. I invite you to follow. Yes, I want to talk about symbolic leadership um, because I think that's a really important point. It's interesting. Well, a, a bunch of questions, actually. Uh, let me start here, actually. 120, why 120? <laughs> well, I didn't make these numbers up. So 120 yeah, yeah. is, right, you know, there's 120 in the upper room, in the, in the room at Pentecost. It's the, ah. That's the, how many, which is actually an amazingly small number. Like this is, I, I sometimes say 120 is how many people you need to change history because there's only 120 there. And yet that's all it takes. It's a very small number. Like many, many churches in North America are about 120 people. Um, so I picked that number partly because this is obviously the, the logic of the ministry of Jesus. He has the three, Peter, James, and John. He's got the 12. Of course, 12 is a, itself a flexible number because there are, we know there were women who are very much part of the community. They're not named as the 12, but they're definitely disciples, and they end up having kind of apostolic roles in various ways. Um, and then the 120 is clearly a, a somewhat flexible number, but the, the idea is um, the 12 you can have face-to-face -face relationship with. The 120, you can have real buy-in for a mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that number 
shrinks or expands depending on the kind of scale of the mission. I mean, so if you think about a feature film, um, which is one of the most complex things that we human beings make these days, there, there's probably five or 600 people involved. Uh, it's still a small group compared to the millions and millions of people who will watch the film, right? But the, the principle of 120 is basically the actual like culture-making energy is channeled through a relatively small group considering the scale of the mission. I mean, God has a mission to renovate the entire cosmos, especially this story, this human story on planet Earth. How many people does he start with on Pentecost? 120. Not 1,000, not 3,000. That comes later. You know, not millions. Like, you'd think you need millions of people to impact millions of people, right? Not true. You need 120 mm. people. Um, so, does that help with that part? Yeah, that helps a lot. You know, it's a little reflective of Robin Dunbar's um, yes. work. Exactly. Dunbar's number, right? What's his book called? Very, very called How many friends can one person have? And yeah. he breaks down all of civilization into groups of 200 or less and then smaller exactly. circles and actually references Jesus. But I think that's that's really important. And I wonder, you know, looking back on the last couple of years, whether, you know, people's circle has shrunk to the point where it's just themselves. And maybe you start with those three and move to those 12 and then start thinking about the 120 as a, as a remedy. That's really helpful and practical. Well, and can I drill down on that for a moment? I yeah, think the please. other thing that happened is we, I think we got infatuated with the broadcasting potential of Zoom. And I would hear all the time from pastors in particular who would say, oh, well, actually we have a lot of people attending our services. The problem is <laughs> that, that, uh, that medium is, is not good for building the kind of real in-depth trust that you need. And I think mm. those were superficial results. I mean, time will tell, but but time is kind of telling. And an awful lot of places that saw an initial surge in online attendance. Now, you know, most megachurches are down 50% from what I'm hearing in, in terms of who's coming back. Um, the, the other thing is even that circle of 12 is too many on Zoom because you can't actually pay attention to 12 little rectangles on your screen in the way you can to 12 human beings around a table. So um the really critical thing is reestablishing these circles of trust, which never get bigger than Dunbar's number, I think. Um, so anyway, uh, that's maybe a no, rabbit trail, but I think that's important. super helpful. Um, when it comes to symbolic leadership, the example that came to mind, I just want to make sure we're tracking on the same thing. I think that's important. A leader has to choose what he or she does at particular times to sort of embody leadership. So I remember when we were planting our church, you know, you are responsible for everything. Like I'm setting up and tearing down with the crew and everything. And then eventually you get a little more established and you're not part of the setup team. But every once in a while, I'd show up early or stay late and stack chairs just to show that, hey, I know this isn't my most valuable role, but I'm with you guys. Is totally, that what you mean? Yeah. Totally. In fact, I was just with a, a really amazing church community um, in Austin, Texas, called the Austin Stone. It's a large mm. church now, six congregations, one kind of governance structure. And do you know the thing that most impressed me? They probably, uh, I was with their whole staff. It looked like maybe maybe 80 people were there at least that day. So it's, it's kind yeah. of that scale of uh, organization. The thing that most impressed me was at the end of every meeting, and I, I was in several different settings with different groups, and they were often in kind of multi-purpose spaces. Um, uh, and at the end of every meeting, Everyone picked up whatever stuff needed to be put away and with incredible energy and enthusiasm, like did the work together and got it done really fast. 
And I said to my host, I said, do you know how unusual your culture is? Because I've been plenty of places where when the meeting's over, a certain group of staff, it's their job to like clean up and everybody just kind of leaves and the whoever's, you know, the facilities people or whatever clean up. Or I've been in places where um, people do that work of cleanup, but sort of slowly and lazily because it's not the most fun thing. And what was so striking, Carrie, was everyone was in it together with this incredible enthusiastic energy. It was so striking. I was like, what's going on in this community that people love to clean up after a meeting? Like I've never seen this anywhere quite the way it was. So that kind of thing has real power to generate a kind of centripetal force, you know, that says we belong together. We love being together. Even the sort of, um, tough stuff or the less rewarding stuff, the less glamorous stuff is worth doing together. And, and, uh, John, my host, uh, John Merkinson, one of their pastors, he said, well, I think it's in our, it's in our DNA from starting in, in meeting in schools where we had to break up and tear down every day. And, and our leaders just set the pattern way back when we started, we're going to do this together and it's going to be fun. And so, uh, it was so inspiring to see a community that lived that way. Now, even though now they're at scale and there's lots of people who could reasonably say, this is not my job, but you didn't, you didn't feel like anybody was saying that's not my job. Mm. Do you have any acts of symbolic leadership that you would love to see from leaders? Um, at this moment, can you think of an example? It's like, oh, wow, I'd love to see a leader do this. Well, the <laughs> the fundamental question of leaders is: Are you in? An, are you in this for you or for me? <laughs> mm. That is, are you in this to? Are, are you calling me? If, you, if you're the leader and I'm the follower, are you calling me to this level of investment and sacrifice to sort of amass power for yourself? Or are you are you doing inviting me into this way truly because it's best for me? And unfortunately, we have a lot of evidence that a lot of the time, the true motivation is to accumulate power, prestige, status, whatever for the leaders. So I think when leaders go out of their way to attend to someone who is of no use to them, (laughs) someone who does not add to their prestige, like I, I think about this as the Instagram buddy problem. So I don't know, maybe I'm the only person who's ever commented on this and maybe it's going to sound weird that I noticed this, but I've noticed that when people take pictures of themselves and post them on Instagram with other people, they often post pictures of themselves with more attractive people than themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just true. It's like, or, or equally or more attractive, right? Like, oh, wow, right. look at your friends. Like, wow, you know? And of course, we also post pictures in be- Or bigger status or more power or more followers exactly. or whatever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, and it's just this subtle way that we signal, hey, look at the kind of friends I have. Look at the kind of people I hang out with. And um, it, everybody from middle schoolers to megachurch pastors does it, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. So what what is it, what would it look like to have your picture taken you know, literally or, or metaphorically, um, with someone who doesn't, doesn't make you look better, but who, who you are with because you genuinely need something from them. They have, Mm. so they're not useful in the sense of accumulating your own power, but they are a teacher of the way you want to live or a, a model of something your community needs to care for 
um, that won't accrue any benefit. Does this does this make sense? I don't know if I'm saying. Yeah, it that does make sense. It's uh, it's really interesting. I've had a number of conversations with people over the years about the pressure people feel on social media, and I guess I'm just old enough to have a good long pre digital life, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, try not to make it too glamorous, people. Try not to make it too glamorous, and. Yeah. And, and to be reflective of what life really is and the people you actually hang out with. I think that's really good counsel. Yeah, and, and to push it a bit, you know. So I, I think about the, the, the extremities of life are, the, in some ways, the times when we are of no material use to others. And we have to be valued simply for who we are. So this is when we're infants, when we're very old, and when we are temporarily or permanently disabled or incapacitated in some way. And if you are a leader of a big, successful organization, do your people see you with people with intellectual disabilities, just engaging with them, learning from them, caring for them, honoring them? Do they see you with people who are very old and um, past the stage of life where they can vigorously contribute? You know, they probably can't pick up the chair at the end of the service or whatever. Um, but they matter. And do you show that they matter? And I think this is very neglected in our productivity-obsessed world um, and, and status-obsessed world, but I think it sets a, a community free when we realize uh, the person who's in charge of this thing <laughs> is not just in it to extract value from us, but is in it to actually impart value no matter our usefulness or lack of utility to the, the mission narrowly understood. So I'm curious. I think that's a really good point. Do you think that has become harder over the last 15 years as social media has overtaken our lives and our culture? It seems to me that that would be, I, I agree mm. with you, but it seems so to me that there was a gravitational, like there was a naturalness to what you just described a decade and a bit ago that seems to have perhaps become harder today because so much I'm thinking of this Andy and, and you feel free to disagree take it in a different direction but everything is curated right like everything yeah. is curated you look at even HGTV and nobody can have a crappy house anymore it's like it's got to be perfect right <laughs> even Your the life, things being renovated you're like it wasn't so bad actually. it wasn't that bad that was eight years ago like it's fine right it's fine and like everything and I think we just have this collective pressure that we're always on we're always with the cool people we're always you're right it's like we're all living in middle school again you know it's just known as social media <laughs> Um, but I don't know whether that, that, that's a really good challenge because I'm wading back into preaching at my church and I'm like, yeah, it's very easy to become the green room pastor these days. Exactly. Oh man. Don't get me started on green rooms, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have well, one. Well, actually we do, but pastors don't use it. I just hide. That's, in my encu that's encouraging. Yeah. And then uh, I gave my office away. So there you go. Oh, mm -hmm. hey, you're, you're, you're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know. now you just have to give up your podcast and then you'll yeah, really then give be up my podcast. Holiness. I gave one away already. Maybe I'll give more away. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the mediation. I think that is part of it. I think it's also a kind of just pressure toward productivity. Um, in, and, mm. and uh, you know, I think, but there's, I think there's even another layer. Um, this is a little bit what the, my, my, my last most recent book is about. Um, yeah. It is, 
it's the impersonal transactional nature of how we get things done in our world now that almost to be effective in the world that technology has made, broadly speaking, including media, requires a kind of transactional calculation at moments that never used to require that calculation. And, and it, it's very connected to kind of a breakdown of fundamental community. It's, you know, it is not that long ago that just what it meant to be a pastor was you visited the sick in your congregation. Mm. And w- why is it now that that's not assumed that the pastor will do that, especially in let's, you know, multi-staff type churches. Um, it's because the pressures to deliver a certain kind of product at a certain kind of scale and pace and the actual collapse of a community that was cohesive enough that it would matter that the pastor knew your aging parents and knew mm. the young the family with a disabled child. And like that, part of the problem is from a just purely transactional point of view, if you're the pastor of a typical kind of middle class, let's say congregation, and the, most of the North, most of North America is middle class, and most of North America is embedded in this kind of technological world, fairly impersonal, fairly transactional world. If you go visit that person, you don't. It doesn't actually benefit anything in the community because they're so atomized and isolated from the other people in the community that that visit doesn't. It doesn't get talked about. It doesn't get. It doesn't sort of reinforce any bonds that exist between people. And it used to be that the pastor was sort of one of the people who held that whole thing together, but now that thing doesn't hold together. They're all individual consumers showing up at your doorstep for religious goods and services. Each of them wants a thing from you, which if you spend too much time with that sick person, (laughs) you're not going to deliver the goods. And Mm. it's not actually going to feed back into communal connection. So, you know, it'd be easy to create a sense of blame or shame that we don't do this as much as we should. But I think there's powerful logic as, as each of us as leaders just tries to assess what moves the needle in my people feeling like I matter. Well, it matters a lot more that I show up with a really great thing on Sunday than that I was in the hospital on Tuesday, uh, because Mm. there's not the web of relationship that would say, yes, you know, Carrie visited so-and-so on Tuesday. Does that make sense? Yeah, you get no points for that. Um, it's interesting because, you know, it was 27 years ago I started at these little churches, and I still live in the same community. Those churches are buildings we sold, and the mm-hmm. people have morphed into what is now Connexus Church. And most of the people I started with, you know, they were in their 50s when I got here, so they're not around anymore. They've, they've yeah. passed on. But, yeah. you know, some of those visits with, uh, I remember... <laughs> You know, being with a 97-year-old woman, her name was Aunt Jenny, as she died over a few days. It took Aunt Jenny a long time to die. It really did. But I was with her with the family over those two or three days, and I'd pop in every day to see her. And those are are some of my fondest memories. And, you know, the church was small, but it was growing. But that kind of personal connection. And now, yeah, you can have millions of followers, but it, it feels fundamentally shifted and different and maybe not as deeply rewarding or meaningful. And I think, you know, maybe is that an Andy Stanley type thing where you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone if you're leading Mm -hmm. a lot of people or any thoughts on how you do that? Because a lot of leaders listening to this are leading large churches, large organizations, large companies and are like, yeah, I'd love to go back to 50 people, but we're not in that world. You 
you are and you aren't, or you aren't and you uh-huh. are. You you aren't in the sense that sure, uh, there are there are things that grow and scale, and you know, not always because we want them to or in the way we want them to. Some of this happens uh, inadvertently, and we're like, oh shoot, this thing got really big. <laughs> what <Yeah>. do I do? <laughs> um, but in yes. another way, um, you if you, to the extent you are really a leader and not just a performer, you have a circle of 120 who, uh, and a circle of 12 and a circle of three. And, and so I, I might not say, you know, you, as you attributed Andy uh, Stanley, like uh, do for one, I would say do for the 120. So there is, there should be, uh, in, in your life, uh, roughly plus or minus 120 people for whom you are pouring yourself out in that sacrificial way. And the way that things actually grow sustainably is those circles multiply. So, it conceivably every one of those 120, if if you're a bishop in the early church or in some church structures today, those might be your priests or your presbyters, your elders, mm. right? And they've each got a congregation, but the bishop is caring for that 120 group of priests. Um, each of them is caring, and and uh, so the way the way to grow in a healthy way is to multiply these circles of 312 and 120. Now, the way to grow in an unhealthy technological way <laughs> is use lots of media to gather people together and put on a show for them that may be quite emotionally affecting and give them a sense of spirituality and so forth, but that doesn't, there's no texture of connection through circles of 312 and 120 that reaches many of the people in the room. Um, the good news is all those people left during COVID and they're probably not coming back. So <laughs> <laughs> you're, you now yeah. are back to your actual circle. Um, so. Are you yeah. saying, just to clarify, are you saying you shouldn't have organizations above 120? No, you should have, uh, you can, they just have to be structured in concentric circles. Uh, that is, or in, I'm not concentric, it might, it might not be the right word. I know in, what you mean, like little clusters in, in cells, of 120. In clusters, yeah, cells. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It, I, I think you get, you, you get above that and you are in the realm of consumption, not creation. Uh, so the mm. the difference between 120 and 1,200 is that 1,200 people, you cannot get 1,200 people to create anything. You can only get them to consume something. I mean, mm. so uh, there's a, probably 120 people involved in uh, creating, you know, one of my favorite current musicals, everybody's favorite current musical, Hamilton, right? Every touring cast of Hamilton is probably, including uh, uh, set designers, uh, orchestra, and so forth, probably about 120 people in every touring cast, um, they can actually like create um, an evening of theater. You can have 1,200 people in the room. All those people can do is sing along to something that others are creating. You cannot get 1,200 people to make something together. So the crucial question for the church is, is this primarily an environment where people consume religious goods and services, in which case you can scale that as big as you want? Or is this a community of people who are actually much more like traveling theater troops who are taking out into their neighborhoods, into their places of work, into the, all the different sort of circles of their lives, the drama of the gospel. And for them to actually like effectively live that out, you've got to think of them like a group of creators, not a group of consumers. And then you're going to think in circles of 312 and 120 all the time. Well, and for leaders who maybe are questioning that, I would encourage you to look at what Andy has to say on it. Also check out um, Robin Dunbar. And Mm -hmm. he makes the argument that in industry and also in the military, yes, you know, there's 30,000 troops, but they're they're not a mass of 30,000. They've divisions and platoons and, you know, 
and they're all broken down into much smaller digestible pieces. And the same with factory. There's a whole industrial theory, you know, not like, don't think 19th century industrial, but modern that you've got to break things down into departments, divisions, and um, teams, et cetera, for things to actually function. Yep. Which is, which is really interesting. The the only things masses of people can do are extremely easy things. Hmm. And uh, the harder it is, the smaller the group that has to do it. So if you, and interestingly, uh, the harder it is, the less it can be done by an individual either. So I, I uh, sometimes use the example of like climbing K2 or Everest or whatever, you know, these you know, incredibly challenging mountain ascents. Uh, if you try to do that alone, you will absolutely die, <laughs> like literally <laughs> yes. die. If you try to do that with 200 people, you will die or somebody will die. The only way to do it is is with a very small group of people, three to 12. Um, Mm. That's literally the only way anyone gets to the top of those mountains because it's one of the hardest things we do. Now, is following Jesus something really easy that you can just get everybody to do? Like you can get everybody to do the wave in a stadium. (laughs) Like, yeah, you can get 30,000 people to do the wave. Sure. Um, no, I, I dare to say, no, it's very hard. And so to do it, it requires doing it together. You're not going to be able to do it alone, but you're not going to be able to do it in some mass group. You're going to do it with circles of trust. Mm. Wow, that's really profound. So I want to move to your new book, The Life We're Looking For. And you argue, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to go deeper, that we thought we wanted a personalized world. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether you make this reference in the book or not, but sometimes like I love, so 15 year old Carrie, first of all, would have loved remote controls. Like that would be great. I remember lying on my bed. Do you remember that? Did you, do you predate remote controls? And it's like, oh, I got to get up and change the vinyl. Change the channel. Yes. I think I do remember that. Change the record. How come the sides are only 20 minutes (laughs) long? Come on. Right. (laughs) Vinyl's cool now again, but I would have dreamed of the remote control. And also, the limited budget, like I think at my peak in college, I might've had 400 albums, like record albums. Oh, yeah. And then it went into CDs and yeah. cassette tapes and the whole deal. And now Spotify is great, yeah. but the algorithm is so annoying that it knows what I listened to yesterday. So when I go to what I think is a new playlist, it just gives me stuff that it thinks I want <laughs> that I've already listened to. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't know don't you me. Have anything I w- new? <laughs> I want a different stream. And it's like over-personalized. So what are that's my little beef with an over-personalized world. What do you mean by an over-personalized world and a personalized world? And what's it doing to us, Andy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, often when eyes is added to anything, um, not always, but often, it, it, it sort of connotes a, a, a simulation of the real thing. So- there's personal. Which is, is, I, I missed that. When what is added when to anything? Add eyes, like I Z E I Z E. Oh, oh, okay. That, personal that suffix, got it, got it, got it, got it. Pers- and, and I'm ism, thinking like eyeballs. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> eyes. Got it. So, so we are persons. I mean, you know, to be a human is is to be per- a person, and yeah. we are made for personal relationship. That is relationship between persons. But what we now have in our technological world is personalized, which is a word we use when it's not actually personal, but it feels personal. In other words, Spotify, there's no person on the other end saying, oh, Carrie Carrie really loved that Ariana Grande song, which I'm sure is what you were thinking of. And so we should serve him up this today. It's 
just an algorithm, but of course it puts your name on there. Good morning, Carrie. Here's your playlist for today, right? Or Siri will say, hi, Andy, you know? So it's this simulation of personal attention. And the reason we love it is, first of all, those algorithms do have some utility in, in sorting out what we like. I'm not sure they always know what we want, and I don't think they often know what's best for us, but they certainly know what we like, kind of what our superficial responses of attraction and, and you know distaste are. So they're sort of useful, but they also, in an impersonal world, they're very alluring. Like, oh, this is paying attention to me. So you know, my device, my personal device, my iPhone, <laughs> iPhone, pays attention to me with a continuous presence that no person does. Like my wife does not pay nearly as untrammeled attention to me as my iPhone. My iPhone only exists to to listen for my voice. Hey Siri, I shouldn't probably say that. It's probably going to wake up. Uh, or <laughs> for me to look at it and open it up with my face. Like it's always looking for me every moment. And my children don't do that. My wife don't do that. You don't do that. And, and this is why a personalized world feels like, oh, finally, the world is responding to me um, as a person, uh, but it's a simulation. It's not real. There's not a real face on the other side. So in some ways, the story of technology, especially in its recent digital forms, is the replacing of, or the, yeah, the replacing of personal experience, where I would actually have a face-to-face -face relationship with another person with a really alluring simulation, which is personalization. And uh, that's a quite a bargain we've made. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, say more about the bargain. Because if you think about it, every it's not yeah. just music. It's not just like, my Instagram is different than your Instagram. My newsfeed is different than your newsfeed. There's yeah. no more... Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, Peter Jennings oh, telling us what right. we think we need. It's all personalized, which gets into that. I don't trust anybody unless you think exactly the way I think, you know, see the world the way I see it, believe what I believe, vote the way I vote, dress the way I dress, right? So yep. talk more yep, about personalization. Yep. Oh, that's really good. Well, I think that's that's a really good layer of what happens is it's actually more and more atomizing and individualizing. Your your Spotify list is different from my Spotify list. There is no top 40 anymore. There's no shared experience uh, at sort of broad levels. Another thing that happens, I think, is it's actually quite rewarding to have these devices that that pay such good attention to us, you might say. And we've all had the experience of being in the room with another person, someone whom we owe love and loyalty and attention, and just finding our attention kind of wandering off to that screen. Why? Because the screen mm -hmm. is so responsive to me <laughs> in a way that another person is not. And, and then a third thing is uh, there's no apparent vulnerability in personalization. That is, uh, mm. I don't feel threatened, generally speaking, uh, by this experience. I feel very safe and secure and known and provided for in a way. Um, there's a shadow side where I start to realize who is recording all the results of this algorithm and what do they know about me that I might, might not even know about myself? Like there's a little bit of like surveillance capitalism threat there. But the initial presentation is this is not vulnerable. Whereas for me, to be in relationship with you, even in a conversation like this, there's vulnerability, there's risk, there's uncertainty, there's the possibility of loss or a breach of trust, right? Um, and all of this adds up to a world that gets more and more personalized, but less and less personal 
And then as mm. so many people say, more and more connected, but less, more and more lonely at the same time. And I really think this is very close to the heart of the, the answer to the question, how did we become, and this is what my book kind of was driven by this question. How did we become the most powerful in many, by many measures, most affluent people in history and the most lonely, anxious, and depressed people? I don't, I don't know if you can say in history, but strikingly lonely, anxious, and depressed, given how beautiful our material conditions are and how good our devices are. And that actually, as they've gotten better and better, the loneliness, anxious, anxiety, and depression has just gotten more and more and more. It's because they are, they are separating us from one another they are undercutting the vulnerability that actually leads to resilience, the rupture and repair that leads to real trust. That doesn't have to happen with a device. But if you never practice that with another person, then you don't know if it can ever happen with another person. And so there's just this cycle of dependence on the personalized when what we're all dying for, kind of literally, is the personal. Mm. That's profound. And that's the cost. And you know, there's more and more research. Gene uh, Twangy, who we've had exactly. on the podcast from San Diego, University yep. of San Diego, I think it is, you know, she has chronicled this for over a decade now yep. about the rise in teen and young person anxiety. And she ties it directly to the yep. rise in technology. Do yep. you see in the research that you've done um, this problem worsening from generation to generation, Andy? Well, I, uh, you know, in terms of the empirical research, I depend on scientists like Gene Twenge, and sure, and sure. Uh, so I don't have any independent data to add. Uh, I think it is very well. It is it, first of all, it's very clear. That there's a there's both a like, you know, the biblical word generation means everybody alive at a certain moment, and I think we are in a uniquely anxious and lonely and depressed generation. Uh, people of every age and stage. Mm. But I think it is clearly affecting young people the most because they're the most exposed to it with the least uh, buffering resources. Like, you know, you you were formed, so was I, at a time when you had to get up to change the channel on the TV. Now, at the time, that seemed like a burden, but so much of the, like, tragic comic, tragic comic irony of technology is all these things we thought were burdens also were formative of a kind of resilience that gave us a way to handle suffering in the world. And... When you are in an environment where everything operates on its own and you are never asked to take on any burdens, you lose resilience. And I think that's clearly happening for um, children and youth and emerging adults. So, and it it's a hockey stick. Like, this is not a little, I mean, I'm sure you talked with Jane about this. This is not a little trend. And it's a hockey stick in things like, in the American Journal of Pediatrics a, a couple of years ago now, uh, the study on poisonings among tw 10 to 12-year-old boys, which is literally not a category of self-harm until the 2010s, and now is on the same hockey stick as every other thing. 10 to 12-year-old boys are poisoning self -poisoning themselves. Self-poisoning or poisoning yes, others? Self-poisoning, intentionally poisoning with the intent to take their lives. This used to be a way that <sighs> girls would commit suicide, uh, but and so it's been a factor for girls for longer. But now we have, out of the blue, 10 to 12-year-old boys who literally, like, you just never heard of a case of this. And now there was this whole article in the AJP documenting this hockey stick-like rise in that for boys and also an increase for girls. Like, just index after index, um, something's really not working well for those who are at the most formative stages of their lives. And by the way, I don't actually think it's their technology use that's the biggest problem. I think it's their parents. 
Oh, um, say more about that. Well, uh, we did do some research for my daughter's book, My TechWise Life. And one of the questions we asked teenagers, um, we did this with Barna, with our friend Dave Kinnaman. Um, and one of the questions we asked, asked teenagers was, if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? And the most common answer is, I wish my parents would spend less time on their phones and more time talking to me. <laughs> So this is what the kids wish were different. Um, so there's a lot of anxiety and maybe even a little bit of panic uh, about teen device use or whatever. I'm much more concerned about adult device use, which is disrupting the ability and willingness of parents, especially during the vulnerable years of adolescence, to stay engaged with their kids. Chris Smith has this really beautiful, sort of sad but beautiful picture that when kids hit adolescence, they send two messages two messages to their parents all the time. And one is, come closer, come closer, I need you. And the other is, get away, get away, I hate you. <laughs> and, you you know, whereas previously in, in early childhood, the message is just come closer, come closer. But in adolescence, you, you start getting, but you, it's both. They both want some distance and they want more connection than they've ever wanted in their lives in some ways. But what Chris says is parents tend to fixate on the, the the aversive reaction, the negative reaction, and they pick up on that. And they're like, oh, I'm not supposed to be involved in my kid's life anymore. I should back away. And they don't pick up on all the same. The same child is also sending you signals saying, no, come closer. I need you right now. I need you to listen. I need you to understand what it's like to be me. And I think that's been a dynamic for parents for a long time, kind of since the invention of adolescence, maybe. But now the parent has a personalized device that never gives you that it's very hard as a parent when when that child one, once came running to you and they no longer come running to you. And there's a sense of grief and loss and even betrayal that we feel as our kids go through that normal adolescent distancing. But if I've got my device to comfort me, console me, distract me, and I can just tell myself, well, you know, they want to be by themselves. It's, it's this lack of attending at mm. this critical age when in fact children need their parents more involved in their lives than ever that the parents now have this thing constantly distracting them from the most important relationship, formative relationship that we could have, parent of child. What are the ancient roots of our tech obsession? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I mean, it's super simple. It's magic. It's the dream of magic. It's the desire mm. to have a kind of impersonal power that you can wield, um, ideally without risk, a kind of, with a kind of... Uh, endless ability to get things done with very little effort, effortless power. So, uh, you know, we've always had tools. Um, so technology is not new in the sense that human beings have always figured out ways to get things done. But we, we had this dream for a long time that we couldn't get to come true, which was that the tools would start to operate on their own. <laughs> so we had this dream of magical brooms that would sweep for us or, um, you know, uh, Aristotle writes about, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to have a, a harp that would play itself? You wouldn't have to have a slave. You would play the music that you just, the thing would play its own on its own. So, and, and all this was very tied up with the dream of magic of, of commanding the world and getting what we wanted with no exertion. And then we figured out some things about power sources and cybernetics and, and we suddenly had Roombas that are like a magical broom. And we had mm -hmm. Spotify that is like a magical harp that plays itself. And that dream, while it has some usefulness, and I'm not saying all those things are not useful in, in their own place, but I think that dream of magic is 
the, wit- the witness of the biblical tradition is it's a bad idea. <laughs> and mm. it's, a, it's a false dream because it imagines that what it would be like God is to be just disburdened um, from really our bodies, our limitations, and just be able to act by thinking. And I think uh, the Christian tradition has wisely said all along, very bad idea. You don't actually want that. And when you mm. get it, you're not going to like it. It's going to be a lot less satisfying than you thought. Underneath some of our conversation today is this idea of agency. So I've been thinking a lot about identity. You know, if you look at uh, our identity, we can place it in a partisanship. You know, I'm right wing or left wing or progressive or, you know, ultra conservative or um, you get you put your identity into who you are, your status, your position, etc. And I think a lot of that is the loss of our Christian identity, our, our identity of who we truly are in Christ. Uh, Yuval Harari, who you quote in your new book, you know, he writes a lot about agency too, and he and Tristan Harris and others are very, very concerned that humanity is right at the precipice of losing agency. And by agency, I mean the ability to think and act freely. In yes. other words, yes, yes, I yes. made a decision and you know, it wasn't the algorithm that told me how to vote or what to think or what to do. Yeah. Um, is that something that concerns you? And if so, could you talk a little bit more about that agency? Do you think we're losing agency? Is that a concern? I do. And I think it's part of the... Um it's part of the irony of wanting to do magic because magic sounds like you'd have a lot of agency. If I had magical powers, I could just make stuff happen, right? That would be awesome. Mm. But, but that's always predicated on this, um, uh, on a, a collapse of personhood. That is uh, the dream of magic is, is the dream of impersonal power. As I understand it. Um, this is why when Dr. Frankenstein creates his monster, uh, you may remember from that story that he creates this monster, and then the thing that drives Dr. Frankenstein crazy and causes him to drive the monster away is the monster wants a relationship. The, the monster wants, for one thing, wants a, a love, wants someone to love, and wants to be in relationship with Dr. Frankenstein. He's like, no, 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 I didn't make you to be like a person. I made you to be a thing that would serve me and give me power. So magic is the dream of impersonal power. And the irony is, the more we, because that's a false dream, the more we have it, the less agency we actually have, the more we are enslaved uh, to the ultimately the principalities and powers that, that whisper in the ears of humanity, wouldn't you like to do this without having to be a person? Wouldn't you like to be able to do things without having relationship? And I think this is very connected to the issue of identity because I'm meant to find out who I am through relationship with you. It's, it's as we are together. And I don't really mean on a podcast or on a video screen, the way we're doing this. I, I mean, like, I mean, we can only insofar as you and I have actually had this with real people like, what was her name? Annie Jenny or Jen Annie, uh, who died oh. very slowly. Like I'm lo- I've lost the reference. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your personal, oh, it took Jenny. a long time I'm to sorry, die. That story. Yeah. Aunt Jenny, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 97 year old Aunt Jenny. Yeah. yeah. Aunt Jenny. Mm-hmm. You were actually with her at, in a formative way that has made you in a small way who you are. And we then bring that into this mediated relationship. But if we, if we never had those experiences 
we and if if we just have personalization all the time, our identity becomes disconnected from real relationship, and it actually gives us less and less power, real power in the world. And juxtapose this with the the Christian belief that God is Trinity, that when Jesus comes into the world, he does nothing without his Father. He's always in relationship with his Father. All of his power, it it kind of looks magical to people around him. They're like, look, he can do miracles. He's got, you know, kind of an ability to change the world that we don't have. But Jesus' own account of it is, this is not because I know some magical spells or because I can, you know, get the world. In fact, that's the promise of the devil in the temptations. Like just say the word, throw yourself off the cliff and it'll just have to happen. And he says, look, I don't do anything that I don't see my father doing. And the spirit is always binding us together in the love of the Trinity. So we are losing that interpersonal identity, which means we're losing our ability to really make durable difference in the world that matters, that contributes to the good of the world, and all of it's being replaced by simulations and by a a growing sense that things are actually, strangely, more and more out of our control, even as we have more apparent power and control than human beings have ever had. How do you make sure, like, what are the habits or practices that you can adopt to ensure that you keep or reclaim some agency? I think Sabbath is the the biggest one. So the the principle of Sabbath where on a regular basis, and I, I kind of think of it as a, I actually think of a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, and for me, a yearly rhythm, and actually an every seven years rhythm. If I can detach and disentangle myself from anything that promises me provision, status, significance, not to mention magic and kind of effortless power, and for, let's say, one day a week, just be back in the world of my neighbors, my family, my body, the creation, uh, not with all these layers. So I turn everything off that has a switch in our house, on, in our home on Sundays, because we don't have to work on Sundays like many pastors. But I think everybody needs a, a weekly rhythm where we turn this stuff off long enough to detox from it. And I will just tell you, like, the beautiful things that happen, like two thirds of the way into those days, because the first the first third of any fast, in a way, is disorientation and distress. <laughs> You're like, I need my yeah. phone, uh, or I need my device, I need my connection, and then there's like this middle third that's sort of emptiness, and it's not clear that anything's happening. But then around the third third, beautiful things start happening, and you realize, oh, my life is a gift, or oh. I'm really grieving this and I I just need to weep about this or, you know, whatever is going on. And it's real and it's personal and it's not at scale. It's just you with your, the people close to you and with God. And if you're really fortunate, a worshiping community that comes around you on a weekly basis and helps you bring that to God. Um, I don't know. I don't think anyone can survive in our world without a Sabbath practice. I just think it's the most important thing. And then a sabbatical practice. For me, every seven years, I quit my job and take six to nine months and uh, with very little agenda other than some pilgrimage, some rest, some pilgrimage, and some prayer about what's next. And uh, that detaches me from the significance of the work I do, the status I have in a certain kind of public. I just think sabbaticals are like essential, especially for leaders. Everybody really should get them, but leaders I don't think survive without them. 
How many sabbaticals have you taken now over the years? I believe I, my next one will be in 2023. I think, depending on how you count, I think it'll be my fifth. Yeah. Wow. Uh, every wow. seven wow. years, and I'm 54. So that, yeah, since my, my first one was halfway through university, I took a year off kind of in the middle of, you know, an Ivy League university experience. I was like, I think I should not do this school thing. I've been doing it since I was five years old. I'm really good at it. Uh, people, I get rewarded for it. And uh, I will tell you back then, gap years are more common now, but this was in the 1980s. Like nobody did this, but uh, it was life-changing. It. it was life-changing to step out of that system I'd gotten so good at working <laughs> and and be in some places where I had no idea what I was doing and had to learn a lot of different things. And then every seven years, roughly since then, I've managed to do that. Wow. So what, <laughs> just give us an, 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 I'm just thinking about that. Give us a, an idea or two about how that changed your trajectory, taking a sabbatical year. Oh man. I mean, I, I can truly say all the really, if I've made any valuable contribution to the world, and some days I wonder, but uh, if I have, it, it has emerged from these sabbaticals, which is to say, in these times, I, I get new clarity about what the next really important thing is for me to do. So in 2015 was my last one. I, I turned all my devices off for all of Lent. That was crazy. <laughs> Even in 2015, that was very hard to do. Um, I'm going to try to do it again in 2023. Um, it actually was when I I came back, I, I turned off all the devices for Lent. Then around Easter, I went on a long pilgrimage, literally around the world, um, was in many different kinds of places, everywhere from Cambodia to uh, Italy, Florence on Easter Sunday, actually. And I came back with a clarity about what was going on in technology and a need to write about it. And three books, including the one with my daughter, have come out of that. Um, that would not have happened if I hadn't had this like total pause, both literally on the tech, but also this pause in my work life that just gave me time to get enough distance and enough kind of presence of mind to figure out what the devices were doing to me <laughs> and therefore maybe what they were doing to the rest of us. So um, that would be one example. Well, that's fantastic. Practically speaking, I guess those are either you save up for them or you have a, an yeah. employer who funds that i never have had uh, i think we we may be putting in place a sabbatical policy at praxis where i work now but uh what i do is i say i save just like we save for retirement like we we have this idea in the west that you're going to have a season of life where you won't work so you save money for that time the problem is we we pile it all up at the end of our lives all the rest is at the end of our lives and seven seven years in a row is not seven times more restful than one year every seven right so we've diverted our retirement savings to some extent. We do save for that season of life as well. But um, yeah, I've got a sabbatical fund. Every month I put money into it because I don't know that I'll have a paycheck. Um, and I I tell you, it's uh, it's the healthiest thing. It's the healthiest thing you can do. Mm. It's also, since we're talking to leaders, it's incredibly healthy for an organization because it forces organizational growth when we know the leader is going to be absent for longer than a single decision cycle. Like it's one thing to take two weeks off in the summer, but if if, if the CEO is going to be gone for six months, that's long enough that we got to have some backup. <laughs> 
And so you develop talent in a different way when you know there's going to be this rhythm of, of presence and absence from the senior leadership. Yeah. Have you returned to some of the same organizations when you've been finished? Like, or is it always a new job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't always been a new job. No. Sometimes I've come, hmm. uh, two times I came back though. The second time, um, the second time I came back and took on some very intensive leadership for a couple of years, this was a Christianity day, but then actually relatively quickly realized, oh, actually it's time for me to move on. So it has often coincided with changes, but um, but sometimes it's just a good reset, and I come back to the same theoretical title with a different perspective of what I most need to be doing. I think you're right. Clarity often comes in the detachment, in the removal from yeah. the everyday and the whirlwind. I mean, that's why if you want to look at one of the most simple things, it's take an offsite, take a day away. Yep. Exactly. Go with your team. You know, your team rarely solves the problems it created in the same work environment that you created them. Uh, hence the exactly. value of the offsite. Let's fly into a different city. Let's exactly. have some different experiences and we'll right. solve problems from a fresh perspective. And I guess the same is true of life, not to mention all the rest. Andy, this has been fascinating. So I just oh, want to thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. I've appreciated your voice and your work and have been really looking forward to this and um, it's a very savory conversation. So uh, tell us the book is called Your Latest, and you've got a number, but uh, The Life We're Looking For, available everywhere books are sold. Uh, but where can so. people find you these days? Yeah, you hope so, right? That was the deal. That was the deal. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, I have like a, a vestigial website, andy-crouch.com. But, um, you know, check out what, what's happening at Praxis. It's so encouraging. We're working with redemptive mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, uh, in a beautiful way and more and more resources to help uh, others pick up some of those ideas and apply them in their own setting. And that's at uh, praxislabs.org, like L-A-B-S, like laboratories, uh, praxislabs.org. Uh, Praxis is a really fun fun uh, community to be part of right now. Andy, myself and so many others are so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Gary. Well, that's really fascinating. And we kind of go in some philosophical territory on the podcast this summer. I'm enjoying that a lot. We've got John Eldridge up next. I'll tell you more about that. But make sure you check out the show notes. We got show notes for this. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 503. We even have transcripts. So if you want to find something, they're so easily searchable. That's again, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 503. Want to thank our partners for this podcast. We choose them very carefully. So please check them out. Brushfire services 30,000 plus events every year. You can get a $500 credit toward your first event with Brushfire by going to brushfire.com slash carry. That's brushfire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And by leader, engage and grow your team with leaders, people development software. Go to leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com and use the promo code carry for 20% off your first year. Next episode, well, we're going to continue in this vein and talk to John Eldridge. He returns to the podcast to talk about the collective trauma we've been through. And he outlines, well, what I didn't know were actual signs of trauma. I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, So uh, here's an excerpt. In your depleted condition, some heartache enters in. You know, infertility, uh, the company collapses, betrayal by a friend, an affair by a spouse. Heartache enters in. And in that moment, The enemy pounces to urge us to give up on God. 
Mm. You see, he's not good. He's not for you. He's not with you. And I am reading texts from people who have walked with God for 40 years saying, I think I'm done. I just don't, I just don't think I can hang in there anymore. It's too disappointing. He doesn't seem to be coming through. And what they don't understand is that in their vulnerable condition, the enemy of their souls has swept in to cloud and poison their relationship with God. That's coming up. Also, a really powerful interview with Terry Crews, the actor. I've got Chris Bale. He did a really fascinating uh, research project that I can't wait to get into your hands. Ramit Sethi, Rich Velotis is coming back, Brian Zand. Who else do we have? We've got Stephen M. R. Covey, Pat Lencioni, and so much more coming up on the podcast. And I just want to thank you for listening and for sharing this episode. If this meant something to you, please share it on the socials. If we see you, we will repost you. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe and maybe tell a friend. I also want to give you something for free for listening. Text the word thrive to this number. Are you ready? 833-777-8558. That's 833-777-8558. It's also in the show notes. And I'm going to send you my burnout assessment. It's summer. You know what? So many leaders I know are just exhausted. It's almost like, you know, we got punched one too many times. We don't know what side is up anymore. And uh, I will send you my free burnout assessment to see how you're really doing. And I'm also going to send you something that I have used for over a decade called my Thrive Calendar. It is what I use to schedule my day to make sure I have margin, hobbies, family time, and so I can crush it at work. That's all yours for free, including some training videos. So these are the systems I personally use. I personally develop, love to get them in your hands. So just text the word THRIVE to 833-777-8558. And it's in our show notes as well. But hey, I want you to thrive this summer. I want you to thrive this fall. I don't want you to be a casualty of leadership. So we're making that available to you for free. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, now that you've listened to the end, have you checked out The Art of Leadership Daily? Check it out with me and Joe Terrell. We go back into the archive and we pick different episodes. We have some fascinating ones every day, Monday to Friday, just a short bit of leadership that I think can make your day better. And uh, hopefully we can um, meet each other there as well. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. 